The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So many of us, probably all of us, have been called to do something hard in our life. And if we have not been called to do something hard yet, we will be called to do something hard at some point. For me, Casey and I, we, were, uh, we went away for a couple of days last weekend to Hendersonville, and we were reflecting on how big of a doofus I was, because it took me two years post us being in college to ask her uh, to marry me. And I was just, see, I don't know who said amen. Did Joe, Joe said it. My best friend at the time would have said amen to that. That's, that's, that's very accurate. Uh, I was just wrestling with being able to commit myself and being able to say, this is the girl for me for the rest of my life. I struggled with it. I, I struggled making that one commitment. And that was a wrestling for me. I had to read Ephesians 5 over and over and over again to really get over myself and to get over my own sin. Maybe you have had to do something hard. You've had to have a conversation with a family member, with a coworker, with a boss, with a child. Maybe you've been called to do a hard task or to do a hard job. Think about Ryan coming back. Think about how many soldiers throughout American history and really throughout the history of the world have been called to do something so hard to leave family and friends and to go and put their life on the line in a varying locations around the world. Maybe a little less so, Trevor's difficulty of walking in here this morning and seeing so many of you dressed in orange. Uh, he's walked into his hornet's nest and hopefully he will get out alive and all good to go. We've been studying through the book of Acts, and we're in uh, Josh just read for us Acts 22. We're going to back up into Acts 21. In Acts 21, Paul walks into what Trevor called last week a hornet's nest. He has been away from Jerusalem by a pretty good distance, and he sets his sights on coming back to Jerusalem. But he has both friends, fellow disciples, and this man named Agabus, this prophet, and they all tell him, don't go back to Jerusalem because you are going to face hardship. It is going to be difficult. You are going to be bound. You are going to be persecuted. It will not be easy. And yet Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, says, I'm okay with being imprisoned. I'm okay with dying. I need to go back to Jerusalem. And so that is what he does. He then goes in the temple He's kind of found out that, hey, there's this man, Paul. He's been teaching everyone everywhere about these different things. Maybe he's even brought a Gentile into this Jewish temple. And so we're going to persecute him. We're going we're gonna to try him. So we're going to read Acts 21, starting in verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up. He's in Jerusalem. And the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. So they go and get, get Paul. They take him out of the temple. They close the gates because they're about to do something to him. And they don't want anything to, ha- anything to be seen in the temple. They don't want blood to be shed in the temple. They're about to do some stuff outside of the temple. They're going to handle Paul. Verse 31, and as they were seeking 
to kill him. Word came to the tribune or the commander of the cohort, essentially this commander of this little legion of soldiers. And this commander hears that all Jerusalem was in confusion or in uproar. So the temple would have been a place, kind of a hotbed of hostility. A lot of discussion happens here. A lot of people are there. And so it would be very uh, important to have kind of a legion of soldiers somewhere close, just in case stuff starts getting a little bit crazy. So the, the, the commander, verse 32, at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. So he takes the, the garrison of soldiers and he goes to the conflict. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, this is the crowd that has uh, taken Paul and want to kill him. When they see the commander and they see his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. This feels like the most obvious thing that all of every human has ever done throughout all of history. I know that you have probably done this. Your kids have probably done this. You are starting to do something. You do something that you maybe shouldn't be doing. And then you get found out or you, you see the, the authority figure coming from afar and you immediately stop doing whatever you should have not been doing. So this maybe happens with kids, with parents, or happens with employees, with a boss. It's so normal right here. They see this garrison of soldiers. They're beating Paul. They want to kill Paul. Oh, no, I see some soldiers coming from afar. I'm going to stop. I'm going to back up. I'm going to take my hands off the situation. I'm not, it wasn't me. I wasn't doing anything. I don't, he's, just, he's just hurt right here. I don't, know, I don't know what happened to him. I don't know how he got here. It wasn't us. Don't blame us. Verse 33, then the tribune, the commander, came up and arrested him. They arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. How unfair is that? Paul was the one being beat up, just being wrecked, just being destroyed by this crowd. And yet the commander comes up, I'm going to arrest you. It seems like you're doing something wrong. All the crowd's in a frenzy. You've made them all mad. I'm going to arrest you and take them in. And so then the commander tries to figure out what's going on. Verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. We saw a riot happen in Ephesus uh, just a few chapters back. When riots happen, when chaos is happening, it's hard to know who's saying what, what is true, what's right, what's wrong. The commander's not able to discern what, who's doing what and who this man is. And so what he has to do is take him aside. Verse 35, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So the violence is so bad. This mob is so crazy. Literally, the soldiers have to pick Paul up, I don't know how they carried him, carrying him above his heads, everybody's carrying him. I don't know how they would have done it, but they have to carry him above their heads so that he is not destroyed by the crowd all around him, so they can get him to safety. And the crowd is chanting, away with him, away with him. This is remarkably similar to a previous crowd in Jerusalem about 20 years prior who yelled, at Pontius Pilate, another authority figure in Jerusalem. There'll be a couple passages on the screen. Luke 23, 18. But they all cried together, away with this man. 
Mark 15, 13, they cried out again, crucify him, kill him, destroy him. That's what the Jerusalem crowd was saying of Jesus 20 years prior to what we are reading here in Acts 21. And now they're doing it to another follower, to a follower of Jesus, to one who wants to exalt Jesus, to one who wants to bring glory and praise to the name of Jesus. They want him destroyed. They want him killed. Away with him. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And the tribune says to him, do you know Greek? So presumably right here, Paul says something in, says this language in Greek, says this phrase in Greek to the tribune. And the tribune's kind of caught off guard. He thought he was going to speak to him in a different language. And then verse 38, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So this commander doesn't, he mistakes Paul's identity. He thinks Paul is this Jewish assassin, assassin, which sounds kind of awesome. It sounds like a Jason Bourne, Mission Impossible movie just like waiting to happen. Paul's like, that's not me. I'm not the Egyptian assassin. Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Paul's like, I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus, a very intellectual, high-up city. I'm not the Egyptian assassin. Would you please let me speak to this crowd? Verse 40, and when the commander had given Paul permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush which is pretty amazing to happen. I mean, this is a huge crowd is around. Somehow mo- Paul motions sufficiently enough that a great hush comes on the crowd. He addressed them in the Hebrew language or a Hebrew dialect. It could have been Aramaic. It could have been Hebrew. But he says to them, so he's addressing a Jewish crowd right in front of him. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. He's trying to make a personal claim. Brothers and fathers, you are with me. Hear why I'm here. Hear why I do what I do. Verse 2, and when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. It's kind of crazy how Paul's just drawing in this crowd. Listen to me. What I'm about to say is going to explain what has happened to me and why I am here and why I am doing what I am doing. He's laying the groundwork for why people should listen to him. Verse 3, he says kind of the same thing he said to the commander. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. He's in Jerusalem. So he's making just tons of claims to listen to me. I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus. It's an intellectual city. You guys love that city. It's a great city. I'm in, but I was raised in Jerusalem. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Uh, this famous rabbi uh, of the Pharisees, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Paul is zealous for the law. He was zealous for the law. He grew up learning the law. The Jews should listen to him because he's grown up as one of them. He was really a chief head Jew. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death. 
Now, depending on your translation, way right there might be translated. The way is a, a, a way is kind of a historical reference to how Christians were referred to in this period. So Christians would be referred to as followers of the way. So Paul's saying here, I persecuted Christians to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. I imprisoned Christians. I bound them. I didn't like them. I didn't want anything to do with them. I persecuted them. I hurt them. And if you don't believe me, just ask these other guys. Verse 5, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were, who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Just ask these guys. They even gave me orders to go and retrieve Christians, to bind them and to imprison them. We may imprison them for a time. We may kill them. We don't want anything to do with them. We want to stop their influence. That's what I was doing. So he's on the road to Damascus. Verse 6 hits a stark transition. So Paul here is laying the foundation why this whole Jewish audience should listen to him. He's a Jew. He's a persecutor of Christians. Verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. So he's heading north out of Jerusalem to Damascus to receive these Christians, to imprison them. And at noon, when the sun is at its peak, the sun is the brightest it can be, a great light shines from heaven. And Paul is blinded. It doesn't say it in this verse, but you're going to be able to see that he's blinded here in, in just a few verses. He's blinded by this great light. Verse 7, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Paul's name at the time was Saul. And just right soon after this experience, this experience happens in Acts chapter 9. We're in Acts chapter 22, so just a few chapters back. His name is Saul. And this voice from heaven says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, who has Saul been persecuting? He's been persecuting Christians. He's been trying Christians. He's been imprisoning Christians. He's been killing Christians. And this voice from heaven says, why are you persecuting me? This voice from heaven is claiming to unite all Christians under him. Verse 8, and I answered, who are you, Lord? Who is this great voice from heaven? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Whom you are persecuting. When Paul was persecuting Christians, he was persecuting Jesus of Nazareth. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? What do you want me to do? The Lord said to me, rise Go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So Paul learns that this, this voice from heaven is Jesus. And he asked Jesus, what do you want me to do? 
Paul's life is just immediately radically transformed. He's willing to do whatever this voice from heaven tells him to do. Jesus says, keep going. Go on to Damascus, and instead of binding Christians, instead of persecuting Christians, I'm going to do something else with you. He doesn't tell him exactly what. You're going to go figure out what I have appointed for you. And it's super interesting because these other people around him, presumably Paul's going to persecute Christians. So these other people around him would be kind of joining in with him. They, they maybe see the light. They maybe hear a voice according to Acts 9, but they have no idea what is going on. Paul is blind. So now they have to lead him to Damascus. Verse 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. So Ananias is this well-respected Jew. Remember, Paul, we're kind of getting two stories. He's telling the story of Acts 9, but he's telling the story to a Jewish crowd here in Acts 22. And he's again trying to build up, why should you listen to me? So he claims that he spoke to Ananias, this well-respected Jew. He's building rapport with his Jewish audience. And then Paul recovers his sight. And then verse 14, Ananias says to him, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Verse 14 is where I want to camp out for just a minute. It'll be on the screen. Ananias says to Paul, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Again, remember, Paul is speaking to this Jewish audience. And when a Jewish audience hears that a great light has taken place, and then hears the God of our fathers has appointed you, they are immediately going to think of and hear the burning bush, the interaction that God has with Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, verse 13, uh, verse 13 through 15, they'll be on the screen. Exodus chapter 3. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said, said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God spoke to Moses. He tells Moses to tell all the people that he, God, is the great I am. He is the Lord. He is the God of your fathers. And Ananias speaks to Paul. He says, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Well, who is this Jesus? Ananias has got to be talking about Jesus because Jesus appeared to Ananias. When Ananias talks 
says this verse, says this statement, he is saying that Jesus is the I am of Exodus 3. He is the Lord. He is the God of your fathers. Jesus is God. Jesus is the righteous one. Going on in verse 14, the one who gives righteousness. When when the Jewish crowd hears this, they're going to think of Isaiah 53, verse 11. Verse will be on the screen. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, okay, Jesus, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 15 tells us that Paul is to be a witness to everyone for this righteous one. Why would Paul witness to everyone? Why does it matter if people know about the righteous one? Aren't you righteous? Aren't I righteous? Aren't all people generally good How easy is it for us to think, I am good, I'm righteous, I do lots of good things, I'm a good person. But we are actually not good people. We need the righteous one to cover us because you have sinned. You are a sinner at your foundation, at your core, Romans, uh, another book in the Bible, uh, just I think the book right after Acts, tells us that no one is righteous. No, not one. It tells us that all have sinned, all fall short. Isaiah 53, verse 11, says that the only way to be righteous is through the righteous one who bears our iniquities. We cannot be made righteous, we cannot be saved through our efforts. We cannot be saved, we cannot be made righteous through cleaning up our lives. No matter how hard you work, you cannot clean your life up enough. You cannot fix yourself as much as you may want to. No amount of good works can save you. In my pastoral prayer, I prayed for uh, Bryce, uh, Elizabeth, Hannah, our team that went out to Halifax. Bryce, a number of years ago, introduced me to a show called The Good Place, I don't know if you guys have seen The Good Place. I think it's on, on Netflix, if I'm not mistaken. But it's an amazing show. It's, it's just beautifully well made, where The Good Place is essentially personified as heaven. And so when they, these, these four characters are kind of put up uh, in The Good Place, the way you get to The Good Place is by trying to do more good works than bad works. Okay? This is the way many think about Christianity. My good stuff, the good things I do, needs to outweigh the bad stuff I do. And so you get points for literally every action you do. And hopefully the day you die, you have more positive points than you have negative points. So just some examples of positive points they put up in the good place. There'll be a little graphic on the screen. You can read some others on there. If you remember somebody's birthday, you get plus 15 points. If you step carefully over a flower bed, you get plus 2.09 points. If you gave out full-size candy bars at Halloween, you get plus 630.2 points. Totally amazing. So give out full-size candy bars. You'll get more credit from God. 
If you donate 16.36% of your lifetime income, you get plus 87,000 points. So that's amazing. You can get all of your negative points away by just donating 16.36% of your lifetime income. But there are some negative points. If you root for the Yankees, you get minus 99.15 points. I have no idea why. If you root for Clemson or South Carolina, I have no idea how many minus points you get. I'm assuming you get minus points. Trevor would probably give you minus a lot of points. But if you overstate a personal connection to tragedy that has nothing to do with you, you get minus 40.57 points. And you get minus 12 points just if you buy a simple tomato because you support toxic pesticides, you exploit labor, and you believe you are impacting global warming. So who gets to measure your good works? Is this how you think about Christianity? Is this how you think about when my life comes to an end, hopefully I've done more good works than I have done bad works? I'm pretty righteous. I'm a pretty good person. I do pretty good things. It's interesting. One character, once they kind of learn all of this throughout the show, says it's impossible for anyone to be good enough for the good place. And that is true for us. Because God is the one who sets the standard. We all fall short. Paul had no hope of change. What did Paul do for his salvation? Literally nothing. He humbled himself before the Almighty Lord and surrendered to Jesus, who appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by... Oh, sorry, I read my other verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which... We must be saved. Salvation comes in no one else but Jesus. And our sin has separated us from God. And only by the blood of Christ are we able to be made righteous. Jesus offers us salvation. We are called to believe in him. And that's it. And maybe you're asking this morning, why does any of this matter? Why am I here this morning? Why does it matter if I know God or follow Jesus? What does it matter? Why don't I just live for myself and in the end it'll get all sorted out? I'm a pretty good person. My good points will outweigh my bad points. What's up with Paul? What what is this guy doing? What has he given his life for? The reason all of this matters is you were created to know God. You were created to know your creator. Much as a a child is to know their, their parents, much as anything we create reflects back on the creation. We think about a a Tesla or a car and it reflects back on Elon Musk. The creator wants his creation to be in relationship with him. God desires a relationship with you. So if you're searching for peace, if you're searching for hope, if you're searching for joy, the only way to find the abundant life that Jesus talks about in John 10, the only way to find hope and joy and peace is to know Jesus. 
How do we come into this relationship? How do we have a relationship with God? It's through the righteous one. Verse 15 tells us that Paul attests to what he has seen and what he has heard. I'm up here attesting to what I have seen and what I have heard. I am the chief of sinners. Sin dwells so deep within me. When I came to know the Lord, I may have looked the part on the outside, but I ran hard away from the Lord. And no matter where you are today, if you committed heinous sin this morning, yesterday, if you just have consistent, habitual, unrepentant sin, Jesus' righteousness is enough for you. It is sufficient for you. He lived a perfect life, what we could not do. He died on the cross bearing the weight of our sin, what we deserved. But he did not remain dead. He rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus conquered sin, death, the world. When we decide to follow Jesus, we believe that he is Lord and Savior, and we are cleansed. Our sins are washed away, verse 16, just like Paul. And as a response to us being changed, we're baptized to signify our new lives and identify with Jesus' death and resurrection. Everything changes when we follow Jesus. Going on in Acts 22, verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. So he was in Damascus. He returns to Jerusalem and saw him, saw Jesus saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And how ironic is it that Paul was told previously by his friends, don't go to Jerusalem. He ends up going to Jerusalem. You know, he ends up in prison. Now he's rehashing a story where Jesus is saying, actually, get out of Jerusalem because they're not going to accept your testimony. They're not going to like what you have to say. And Paul said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Paul is saying, they're going to see the change in me. They know everything I did. They know how I persecuted Christians. They're going to see the change in me. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, Jesus is not just out to protect Paul. Jesus actually has a plan to send Paul to the Gentiles. And that's what he does. Essentially, Acts 13 to Acts 20, Acts 21, Acts 22 is just Jesus sowing the seed of the Gospels to the nations. But then we kind of come back to reality. The story that Paul is telling before this big Jewish audience In verse 22, as soon as they hear the world Gentiles, as soon as they hear about going to proclaim God and his holiness and Jesus to the nations, verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. 
Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So as soon as he starts talking about the nations and Gentiles, he shouldn't be allowed to live anymore. God is out for Jerusalem. God is out for Israel. God is out for the Jews. Verse 23, And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune, the commander of the the little garrison, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So the commander still doesn't know what's going on. Why is the crowd so upset? So he's going to take Paul inside and he's going to flog him, essentially just beat him and beat him and beat him. He's going to take his shirt off, he's going to bind him, and he's just going to whip his back until Paul confesses why the crowd is so upset with him. Verse 25, But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen. So the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Paul says, yes. So Paul then kind of brings out his trump card. He is a Roman citizen. He hasn't made it known up to this point. He said, I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus. I grew up in Jerusalem. But saying he's a Roman citizen is going to carry great weight right here of relieving him from this flogging that was about to partake. Paul waits until I'm about to be beat. I'm re- I literally am about to be persecuted. I'm going to now claim I'm a Roman citizen, and that's going to slow things down. Verse 28, the commander answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. So this commander makes this little kind of jab at Paul, like, I had to buy my Roman citizenship for a ton of money. If you are a Roman citizen, it must be cheap. It must, they just must be passing them out at this point. But Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So the tribune and the soldiers are immediately afraid because it is a serious violation of Roman rights to even bind a citizen, to think about flogging him, to think about binding him and arresting him. So now they're afraid for their own lives, for their own well-being, which is just kind of an encouragement to think about. Paul doesn't have a martyr complex when he goes to Jerusalem. He's not pursuing martyrdom, pursuing persecution He uses wisdom, he uses judgment, he uses what he has around him to try to make much of Jesus. Maybe you read all of these verses that we've just gone through, and wherever you are, you're thinking, you want this type of Damascus Road experience that Paul talks about in Acts 22. I want to just share with you that it may not happen like Acts chapter 9, like Acts 22 that Paul rehashes. God has specifically set Paul apart. It is a miracle in Paul's life. And yet miracles still very much happen. The fact that any of us have had our dead hearts, that we've had them made alive, is a miracle. 
This is a miracle that we get to know Christ. Jesus continues to take the hopeless and give them hope. He takes sinners and he redeems them. The problem is not God doing a miracle in front of our eyes and then we will believe. The problem is that we do not see Jesus for who he is. He has made himself known. My Bible is 1,500 pages long. Jesus has made himself clear in his word and through what he has done on the cross. He's made himself clear even in creation, as Romans 1 will talk about. John chapter 6, uh, verse 35 and 36, it'll be on the screen. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's just walked on water. Like the two greatest miracles you could see right in front of your face. Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to be hungry anymore or thirsty anymore? Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me. You've seen me feed the 5,000. You've seen me walk on water. And yet do not believe. Many of us may see and see and see and do not believe. Many of us may be culturally in Christianity, culturally within the confines of the church. We see Jesus right in front of us. The gospel has been shared with us, and we don't believe. I pray that you would be honest with yourself this morning. Have you believed in this Jesus, the one who is Lord and Savior? Have you believed in him for the forgiveness of your sin? The one who is going to come back to judge the living and the dead. The one who is going to separate the wheat and the tares. The one who's going to separate those who are going to spend eternity with him. Those who he's going to separate, those who are going to be cast into the lake of fire and spend eternity separated from him in hell. Jesus is God. Our passage makes it clear. Will you follow him and obey him? Maybe you read this passage and you think, if I had a Damascus Road type experience, then I would be really sold out for Jesus, just like Paul, whether you're a non-Christian or you're a Christian, if, I just, if Jesus would appear to me and show me, then I would follow. Then I would really be sold out. But the word makes clear that all are called to give everything for Jesus. And our passage this morning helps lay the right foundation. The foundation that's laid, there's going to be four points that are going to come up on the screen. The first that we see in our passage is that the gospel and the Christian life are repulsive. Do not be surprised at intimidation, at hate, at accusations. Living the Christian life is not easy. Christians will be the victims of hostility and lies. But we have Matthew chapter 10 verse 28. It'll be on the screen. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. 
The one we are to fear is God himself. We are not to fear other men. Humans can't do anything to us if we are in Christ. Because we will spend eternity with Jesus. Tori in our community group this past week brought up Philippians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. Really helpful. Paul, again himself, talks about dying is better because we will be with Christ. But it is necessary for him to remain in the flesh to live out what God has called us to do. If you are alive and you are in Christ and you hear my voice, all of you, you are called to give everything for the sake of Christ, to minister until the Lord calls us home. So first, the gospel and the Christian life are repulsive. Second, obedience to Jesus is hard. Paul has crowds and mobs after him because he is faithfully proclaiming Jesus. He is being dragged and beaten And people are trying to kill him because he wants to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Obedience is hard. You may need to clearly proclaim the gospel to a neighbor, to a co-worker, to a family member. You may have to stand up for the unborn. You may have to stand up for a biblical view of gender and marriage. You may be called hateful, bigoted, intolerant. I can only imagine what names Paul was being called right here at this time, at this moment. The the crowd literally wants to kill him. And what has he done? He's told people about Jesus. He's told people to follow Christ. That this Jesus, this crucified one, this resurrected one is worth giving everything to. And how and why does Paul do this? He knows the righteous one. He knows Isaiah 53. He knows the suffering servant. Jesus has turned his life upside down. Jesus gives much grace to Paul in his greatest time of need. And we are called to follow Jesus, to follow his word in a similar way. Acts chapter 5, the apostles were arrested because of their witness to Jesus, very similar to what happens to Paul here in Acts 22. Acts 5, verse 40 and 41 will be on the screen. And when they had called in the apostles, this is kind of the the, uh, authority figures, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. These apostles rejoice at the hardship they face because of Jesus. Obedience is hard, but it is worth it. It's what God has called us to do. Are you okay suffering dishonor for the name of Jesus? And maybe even a measure for us is, are you suffering a level of dishonor for the sake of Jesus? Now, it's not meant to be a badge of honor to look at us, a badge that we have to proclaim that we are such great Christians because we face dishonor. Some of you out there, that's probably maybe your proclivity is to, is to bow up a little bit. But if you don't face a level of hardship from the world, are we being faithful to Jesus and to his word? Now, I'm not saying we're going to be like the apostles or Paul, but the gospel is offensive. We are not to be the ones who are offensive, but the gospel is the one that does the work. The gospel is foolishness to the Gentiles. The cross is offensive to the Jew. 
Number three, faithfully share the gospel and your testimony. Paul is bold and he tells people that they have to believe in Jesus or they will be separated from, him, from Jesus for all of eternity. And he, but he does this in a very unique way. He recognizes his audience. He knows he's speaking to Jews here in Acts 22. So he uses wisdom to engage his audience. He talks about being a Jew. He talks about being from Tarsus. He uses his Roman citizenship. This engagement is very different than what Trevor taught us on Acts 17, how he engages with pagans. He engages with people in different ways, but he always is faithful to proclaim. Think about a passage like Acts 4, 29. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness. I pray that we would speak the word with all boldness. And I am with you. It is terrifying to evangelize. It can be terrifying to go and build a relationship with a neighbor or a coworker or family member for the sake of proclaiming Jesus, for the sake of talking about him and his greatness. But just like we talked about at the very beginning, Jesus calls us to do hard things. Sharing isn't easy. We love our comfort. We love our pride. We're maybe afraid of failure. But I pray that we would be faithful. And number four, Jesus saves. Jesus is the one who can save you. If you are separated from him, Jesus is the one to come to. And if you are proclaiming the gospel, it's not up to you to save anyone. Jesus is the one who saves. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you humbled by your grace and your kindness that you allow us to study your word. Lord, you allow us to know you and to worship you. Jesus, I pray that you would save, even this morning, even in this moment, for any of us who have run away from you, who have not been following you, Lord, help us to follow you. Help us to know you. Help us to worship you. And Lord, if we are in you, it is so easy to allow our comfort, to allow our pride, to allow our fear of failure, to prevent us from sharing the gospel with coworkers, with neighbors, with friends, with those we interact with at the grocery store. Lord, I pray our church would be defined by boldness in sharing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Just like the kids learned at VBS, John 14, 6. There is no other name by which we can be saved other than Jesus. Lord, help us to be obedient to you even when it is hard. Lord, we thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.